This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Now, here are Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door and Stefania Secha from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness with today's guest. I guess good morning on my side of the, <laughs> the continent in Canada here in BC. How are you guys doing? Fantastic, thanks. I'm really excited about today's guest, uh, Dr. Jeffrey uh, Turnbull. And, you know, if we would need an entire show for me to go through all the accolades that, uh, and I, I think he would uh, be horrified if I did go through all of them, uh, but he's earned every one. I mean, Order of Ontario, Order of Canada, former uh, head of the Canadian Medical Association, um, and now he's the medical director of the Ottawa Inner City Health uh, program and just incredible. But what stands out to me about today's guest is, you know, titles aside, he should have the title incredible human being, uh, just his dedication, compassion, and what he does for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome, Jeff. Um, again, we're so excited to have you. And uh, we're always fascinated by the journey of our guests as well. And, and your story is certainly no exception. Um, in 2017, you walked away from a high profile job as chief of staff in Ottawa to take on your current role at a time when many people might consider retiring. Um, can you walk us through some of yours and, and how you ended up in your current position? So thanks, Stefania. The always had um, the opportunity of looking at medicine from many different perspectives. So I provide services in an acute care facility, the Ottawa Hospital. I have uh, taken on leadership roles locally, provincially, and nationally. But, you know, I've always kept my interest in delivering services right in the community for the homeless. And I started that at, you know, back in the 90s and, and have continued that uh, right until the present. And from an absolutely selfish perspective, um, I have to say that it's the most enjoyable part of my day. And uh, uh, I would loathe to give that up. I suspect I won't be giving that up anytime soon. <laughs> That's great. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the work of Ottawa Inner City Health? So Ottawa Inner City Health started in the early 90s uh, when myself and several other key people within the, the homeless community got together and said, you know, we can do a better. The, we were really taken by the, the very poor health outcomes that were experienced by people experienced. And so we started this process of healthcare delivery. It was a healthcare system for the homeless. And what we it wasn't the usual healthcare system, of course, because that wouldn't work and it wasn't working. And so we said, no, let's deliver care that's appropriate to them on their terms. And so we started bringing health services right into the shelters. And now it's grown from a small little operation to something that's actually a whole healthcare system from health promotion, primary care, secondary level care, even tertiary care, and of course, end of life care for those people who are dying within the homeless community. And so we're 
multiple sites throughout the city, multiple programs, um, personal support workers and peers and nurses that reach out every day and work writers. I think that's just incredible. And and there was there's something the other healthcare crisis I wanted to, you know, touch on as well is is you've been a strong proponent of preventative work when it comes to dealing with the opioid crisis. And can you talk to us a bit about that as well? So of course, working with the the homeless, we many most I would say of our our clients experience both mental health and addictions. And the addictions we've seen everything from, you know, non-beverage alcohol to um, crack cocaine and then prescription opioids, and then more recently, the opioid crisis. And remember, I see the most refractory people with addictions. They have failed almost every other treatment program. And so I've been struck by the fact that we have to stabilize them first for traditional treatment programs to work they have to be stabilized. And then we have to work on many different facets. It's not just addiction. It's what brought them into a world of poverty. What's their mental health like? What are their family supports like? All of those things have to be worked on at the same time to be successful in stabilizing people, get them into a housed environment, and then move them from that supportive housing into uh, an integrated community-based program that where they can succeed and become part of our community again. And so that harm reduction perspective, reducing the immediate damage has always been so important for us. And then at the same time, delivering services that are appropriate for them and saying, how can we help you and remove barriers for you to get you back into a life that's more stable, one that you want? Jeff, you talk about community and, and a sense of community is so important uh, for people when we're looking at ending homelessness. And we know while the entire community, entire communities have been severely affected by the pandemic, are most vulnerable even more so. Can you talk about what's changed for you and your team uh, over the course of the pandemic? So we were, Michael, just recovering from... Um, we're not even recovering. We're trying to deal with the opioid crisis. Um, and then lo and behold, along comes COVID. And think about somebody who is struggling with mental health issues, um, addiction, sheltered environment. Think about all the things that you and I are able to do to protect ourselves and families, such as socially distancing, hand hygiene, get tested regularly and frequently with any symptom. And then if you're tested, you have to isolate. Those things are totally beyond the capacity of a person who's homeless, who's struggling every day with their addiction and their mental health. That's their priority, the voices and the withdrawal that they're trying to prevent. Then you're living in a 70 bed room. You're lining up with a hundred other people for meals. You're in an overcrowded facility. And if you are tested and have symptoms, where are you going to go? You are not going to go back into that shelter and there's no place for you to go. So the challenges are enormous for them. They're vulnerable. They have high risk circumstances. The, their living environment is, is one that is, 
is very, very dangerous for them. And they feel totally helpless. And they kind of feel that institutions around them have let them down. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, the first message to come out of the pandemic was stay safe, stay at home. Very tough to do if uh, you do not have a safe place to call home. We're seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. We're seeing the vaccine rollout across Canada. Uh, but in doing a little research on, on your work too, you talked about the difficulty or some of the challenges that you see with uh, getting the vaccine out to people experiencing homelessness. Can you expand on that? So first of all, the vaccine is gonna be just absolutely essential for us. Just to tell you the last two weeks, we have two, over 200 positive cases in our shelters. That gives you an idea of just the magnitude of the problem that we're dealing with. Now, the only way that we're gonna be able to stop the spread of that amongst individuals who are so precariously housed is some kind of a, a vaccine. And that's gonna be what we're all waiting for. But think about it, you know, two doses, you know, you've got vaccine hesitancy. You've got people who have not trusted structured organizations to give them shots, etc. Quite rightfully, I have to say, in some circumstances, you've got individuals who don't stay in the same place. They're moving from place to place. How are we going to give that second dose? Are they going to give us their name? And it has to all be built on trust. The people who are giving the vaccines have to be trusted members of their community. And they have to say, you know, this is a good thing take it. I'm taking it. I want you to take it. So the challenges that they face in getting appropriate immunization that you and I would expect, it's just almost insurmountable when you take into consideration all those factors of moving around and names and no trust and all of that kind of stuff. So we have a big challenge ahead of us, but that doesn't prevent us from moving ahead. And we are ready. We, we, we'll do this as soon as uh, we can get the vaccines made available to us. Absolutely. And it's not a, it's not a simple uh, procedure as you talked about, right? But it's, it's good to know that you and your team are ready to roll. I think as we look back at, I think it was 2003 around SARS when we said, what are the lessons learned? When in a year, two years, when we're mostly through COVID, what do you think are some of the lessons learned from this pandemic? Well, I... Michael, I hate to say this, but you know, we kind of knew some of these problems before COVID arrived. We knew that there was the most vulnerable members of our communities were living in very unstable, overcrowded circumstances. We knew that. We knew that those people were deprived of reasonable, effective services. And we were not um, moving swiftly enough into effective housing strategies for this community to end homelessness. Hopefully the lesson learned from COVID was, you knew that stuff, now get on with it and deal with it before another catastrophe occurs right before our eyes, because this is unfolding as we speak. Um, and it's a major, major issue and new variants or whatever that might be, we are just waiting for this to explode within the homeless community and that will be a crime. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I just want to take a moment for our next question to kind of pivot, because um, we've been talking about what's going on now, but to kind of be reflective and look back over your career. And I'd love to know more about some of the work that you are most proud of. Um, and also, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see ahead? So I'd have to say this, the things that I've been most proud of, um, even though I've worked in many different areas in medicine, I would say that I'm most proud of my work within the homeless community. It's uh, being part of a team that have made such an important contribution uh, to the homeless community, to the quality of their lives, to advocate for them, to give voice to the people who are voiceless, and to provide meaningful services to them. So I would have to say, if I was speaking to my children or others, I would hope that they would remember me for that more than anything else. And what are some of the challenges ahead? I think my greatest fears are that we won't move ahead in an effective way on ending homelessness. We've talked about this till we are blue in the face. Now let's get on and do something about it. Put me out of work, please. Uh, I think that um, if I was to look back, I'll, you know, in, in 15 years, if we're still talking about homelessness, I will be gravely disappointed. Yeah, I agree. Um, I really also love that mantra of put me out of work. I think that's sort of the end game, isn't it, for all of us in the sector. Um, so <clears throat> speaking of that, how can people find out more about the life-saving work you do at uh, Ottawa Inner City Health or, or support its cause? I would just one of many different groups right across this country who are very hard to serve this community. You can connect with us through our website um, um, at Ottawa Inner City Health, um, and we would be very pleased to try and provide any additional information or support anyone who wishes to uh, serve this very, very vulnerable and marginalized community. Wow. Well, listen, I think that we would be fools not to support it. You're doing incredible life-saving work. You're inspirational. Listen, I did a lot of reading about you before this. You lived <laughs> up to expectations. Um, and we are so grateful for all you and your team are doing to help people experience homelessness. We know that housing is health and health is housing. They are um, <laughs> interconnected so much. And you can't say healthy without a home. And, you know, we... We can't say healthy without people like you leading the way. So, Jeff, thank you so much for all you do and for coming on the show today. We know your time is so valuable. Yeah, thanks it's been again. Just an absolute pleasure. Thank you both. Wow. What an incredible individual. You know, Steph, when uh, when I was doing the research around Dr. Turnbull, I mean, the, the accolades that he has are incredible and, and, and well-deserved. But what people talked about was his ability to connect with people, uh, people experiencing homelessness, staff. Um, and you saw right there, I mean, I felt so connected to him immediately. And, and so it was no lie. Um, just incredible to have him uh, on the front lines doing this work, working with his team. He truly gets it. It gives me a lot of hope. I agree. I think the end game has to be ending homelessness. And, and it was really nice to hear that echoed by someone who's a leader in the healthcare field. Absolutely. I mean, listen, homelessness has not been around in this magnitude forever, right? It mm -hmm. is. It's coincidentally when he started his work in the early 90s, it was the late 80s, early 90s, where homelessness really took off. Coincidentally, when we stopped building affordable, supportive housing, yep. there is a way out. 
it, it is, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a climb, but we are up to it. And with good people like uh, Dr. Turnbull uh, leading the way, uh, it gives me hope. Do you have an idea or a podcast to share? Send it to us here at Discovery, the radio show for podcasters on 105.9 The Region. Hi, I'm Gianluca, host of the Famous Friends podcast. Join with my friend and co-host Selena. We want to showcase and recognize the talent among our friends, discussing real stories of hard work and success. Listen to stories of knowledge, passion, and determination. Here is a little taste of one of our latest podcast episodes with Victoria Rhombus, the lead salesperson from Muskoka Brewery, explaining to us how beer is made. You're the friend that I would be like, okay, so we're at a bar. Tell me what I should order because I have no idea. <laughs> right. And uh, like, yeah, I don't know much about beer. I just kind of go off the advice of like friends who know more about beer. And they're like, oh, you're, you're going to like this one type of thing. So like, I guess the basic basics, just if you could quickly explain how beer is yeah. made and then kind of like maybe how you kind of go into recommending for people. Well, like, first of all, I don't want you to feel bad that you don't know a lot of beer. Like, I arguably know too much about beer. Like, you are normal. I'm, I feel like <laughs> I'm the one that's not normal. Um, oh, well, thank you for trying to make me feel better. <laughs> no, no worries. Yeah, so I can go into, like, the brewing process. If you are a brewer and you're listening to this podcast, I apologize in advance, but I am going to simplify this. Okay. Um, do it. Do it. Yeah. Full disclaimer. I, you know, the, break it down for us, though. We're, we're simple like, We don't yeah. need the science. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you like the basics, all you mm -hmm. need to know. So there's a couple different uh, processes. There's four ingredients in beer, right? I'm sure you've heard of them: barley, mm -hmm. uh, yeast, hops, and water, right? So barley is the grain. The first step in making beer is malting that barley. I'm gonna make through this. I'm gonna make a couple comparisons. So think about Selena. Yeah. Do you drink coffee all the time? So you know how there's like different roasts of coffee beans, right? And you can get okay. coffee beans from different areas. Yeah. When you're malting barley, the longer that you roast it, the longer that you kiln it, the different, like you get different flavors out of it, similar to how you would roast a coffee bean. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I'm getting So this. after that process, you mill the grains, the barley, and then it gets to the brewery. Mm -hmm. And you do, the first step in the brewing process is called the mash. And at this point, you're putting the coffee beans into the water, right? Cool. So, or think about it as like a tea leaf or something like that, right? So you basically the process is you're using that malted barley and you have to heat it up in hot water. And the, the process is more complicated than I'm going to make it sound, but mm. you're turning the starches from inside the grain to sugars. And the reason why okay. we need sugars is because at the end of the process, spoiler alert, yeast eats sugar and breaks it into two things. CO2 and alcohol. Oh, yes. Yes. Which is the, the key to beer, right? Yeah, so, so you, you need you bubbles need and you need to feel the, feel the good vibrations. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's what the hot water is doing to the grain when it's in the mash. Mm -hmm. After that, it boils for a little bit. So think of it as like a sweet liquid. You put it into mm -hmm. a different tank mm -hmm. for the watering process. And at this point in the process, I want you to picture like a French press coffee maker. Delicious. Okay. So, okay. It's it basically there's a false bottom in the tank mm. and the way that you would press the top thingy of a French press of coffee, it concentrates all of the liquid and separates it from the ground up grain okay. kind of thing. Okay. That's the easiest way I can describe that process. It's a big from French there, press. It, it's kind of like a French <laughs> press. Yeah. 
or like I like these, yeah. If you were to make tea, mm-hmm. it, it's like contained in a bag, right? So you like that's the way that you would filter out the actual tea leaves, but mm-hmm. in beer we do it through a lauder. Then you boil it again in a different tank. And at that point, that's when you add the hops. So hops do a couple different things. They act as a natural preservative, which is pretty cool. They add a lot of flavor and they add a little bit of bitterness as well. After you boil it with whatever hops you want to use, you send it into the fermenter. And at that point, you pitch in the yeast. So you can use a couple different kinds of yeast. If you want to brew an ale, you use one style of yeast. If you want to brew a lager, you use a different style of yeast. Again, oversimplifying. And then you let it sit. You let the yeast do its thing for a couple weeks. And again, that yeast is going to break down all of those sugars that we had converted in the mash phase into bubbles, into booze. And then you're going to start making some beer. Super cool. Yeah. So after that, you can filter it, which some breweries do. At Muskoka, we have a centrifuge. Yes. Um, Yeah. Uh, You were telling me about that. So centrifuge is basically that ride at the CNE that spins really, really fast and you get stuck to the side of the, the ride. Yeah. With centripetal force. I think there's one on one too, right? Like night, nightmares yeah. it was or something like that. Oh yeah. Know, yeah. For whatever reason, Faith Hill uh, uses the term centrifugal motion in that one song. This yes. kiss. Mm-hmm. Um, same process that we're going through with beer. It basically separates all of like the bigger particles of the yeast, of the hops, of the malt, whatever that might be still stuck in there. Mm-hmm. Um, pulls it out so you have some nice clear beer left over and then at that point you send it into a conditioning tank and then after everything sort of like all of the flavors get to know each other and some different the beer cools down some different processes happen there um, you send it to get packaged wow that's wicked thank you so much for explaining that insert Um, round of applause you know right here like geez like you put a full disclaimer out before that was pretty in depth like i'm impressed That's like the easiest way I can explain it is to compare it to something that you already know, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like I I love coffee. I have it every morning. So thank you for that. Yeah. No problem. And like a brewer would take you through this and make it a little bit more scientific than I'm making it, but. Oh, no. No, that's okay. Uh, There was something that you mentioned that Muskoka Brewery has that uh, maybe other ones don't. What was that again? It's like the center field. It's like the spinning. Centrifuge. 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 That's what it's called. So there's like there's a couple different ways you can filter beer. Um, And basically the only reason you would filter beer is just to get rid of any particulate. Specifically in like North America, we really like crystal clear beer. If you Mm -hmm. go over to like Belgium or Germany or even in like the UK, they like their beer a little bit cloudier correct um because it's a little bit more traditional over there but in north america we really prefer it like pretty clear um that's changing a little bit but i digress um other breweries would use something called de diatomaceous earth it's like fossilized algae that's when we can get like really nerdy and weird um but that it like coagulates with particulates in beer and like filters it out for you coagulates (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I like John that. Lou loves my John Lee loves my big words, but um, she reads like all kinds. Like when she's not doing things, she must read every single book in this place. Like we started this podcast, I'm like, what are you saying right now? Yeah, I said the word extrapolate, and extrapolate—that's the word. Almost pooped his pants over there. Yeah. How do you spell that? Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what, what he said. That's yeah. why we know each other so well. Oh my god, that's so. That's oh really funny. God. Uh, we're not gonna get into John Lucas grammar. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I suck, guys. I, I, I honestly, man, like if it wasn't for sports, I would have failed high school. I'm so sorry. About oh my that. god. Like, and then I, I I'm so envious of so, you guys, okay. and you know, you're so articulate. I'm just you. like, 
please dumb it down for me. Like, I don't understand. I read. I read like, you know, I'm picture just books. here like, I don't know anything about beer. And you're like, I don't know how to read. No, <laughs> we got to get you. John Lee, we got to get you doing like crosswords or something. Oh, my God. Like, you know what? I've been playing this game that like helps you become more articulate on my phone. I've been trying to do like dedicate 10 minutes a day to it, but I suck. I can't get past like the three letter matchups. It's terrible. Oh, it's a start. I know. It's a start. It's a start. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> uh, bring, bring things back here a little bit to, you know, Miss Victoria yeah. and what she does so well. Um, I'm just going to not going to beat around the bush. You're, you're a really cool kid. You're the cool kid in the room. And I want to kind of know what makes your job so cool. Um, well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for calling me a cool kid. I've never been a cool kid. Extrapolate so is... that, Victoria. <laughs> I will. I will extrapolate it. Yeah, no, there's a lot of amazing parts about my job. The people I work with are incredible. The company that I work for is amazing too. Like, I don't want it to sound too much like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid in terms of like hyping up Muskoka Brewery, but as like a young professional, Muskoka Brewery, I've never worked for a company that like invests in me the way that Muskoka does. So it like, it's very rewarding in that way too. But in terms of like the day-to-day stuff, just every day is different, which I love um, I can work from home. I can work from the car. I can, you know, if this were the n- normal times, the before times, I probably would have taken this podcast from like a bar and been like drinking. <laughs> we would have loved to been in a bar together. Believe that. Um, yeah. And I would have joined I just, you. <laughs> I get to know a lot of people. I get to meet like a lot of different people from different walks of life. Um, and I just get to introduce people to beer a lot too, right? Like the majority of people don't know a ton about beer, right? They are just probably very like surface level into like casual beer drinking, which is amazing. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but being a person that like could possibly have the responsibility or the opportunity to like introduce you into this thing that I really, really care about. And I really Mm -hmm. love, it's a very like special thing. It's very nice. It's a very exciting part of it. And I like, I mean, Selena, you were saying like, if we were at a bar together, you would probably ask me what to order, right? Totally. Yeah. Like I love being able to find you something that you would like and like you taking a couple sips and then like loving that beer, nothing would make me happier. We got to do this one day though. Like I'm holding you to that. I would love <laughs> that. I would love that. Bring it even when further. Pat- so we're going to go up to Bracebridge. Like we're going to oh, go to yeah. the Muskoka Brewery. Victoria's going to be there. You have to go. It's so beautiful up there. And the brewery is so amazing. Everybody that works there is so awesome. I miss them so much. I haven't been able to go to the brewery as much as I wanted to in these past like months, obviously with COVID, but mm-hmm. you got to go see the brewery. It's amazing. I'm going to add into that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the the pleasure of serving a lot of your staff, you know, at Porcello Cantina. Yeah. And so that, you know, like salt of the earth people, like you're just so mm-hmm. genuine mm-hmm. and caring. Like, you know, when someone oh, yeah. says, how are you? They're actually saying, how are you? It's like they're listening. I want to know. It's not like yeah. just saying, how are you doing? Good, good. Ciao for now. You know, it's like they're like, how's your day? And they're like listening to us be like, you can be like, I'm having a bad day. And they'd be like, so what's the, what's the matter? Like, can I help you out? Like, that, that's the type of people that work at Muskoka. And I love that you guys are able to like build that culture, you know, and have that. That's so yeah. nice. Well, and if I may, I would like to extend that right back to the culture at Porcello. Like I have never felt mm-hmm. more like family anywhere else. I absolutely, for listeners, I met Gianluca obviously at Porcello. I met him doing one of the most memorable sales pitches of my life to an account. Um, oh, wow. We can tell that story la- later, but um, 
I did. Yeah. I got the opportunity to bring our entire sales team to Porcello for drinks and dinner. And you guys treated us like family right off the bat. That's that's the way we roll. Shout out to Anthony from Shout out Anthony. episode two. The, oh yeah. 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 Let's, when when everything, you know, it's all open now, so we can all go and sit down and have a, a beautiful dinner together. I would love that. You know, and uh, I'm going to bring this back a little mm-hmm. bit to, uh, you know, your, your knowledge on the beer making process. And it sounds like you've, you kind of done it before, Vic. Mm-hmm. I think you've made your own beer, no? I have. Yeah. Ooh. I've brewed, I've brewed my own beer. Maybe, maybe once or twice. Maybe once or twice. Maybe ever. <laughs> Couple, mm-hmm. couple brewskis, yeah. couple bruchachos. Oh, fumble rookie. Um, mm-hmm. I've uh, done a couple of home brews with some buddies, but I've had the opportunity as well with Muskoka. We have a program called the Moonlight Kettle Program, where you get to brew your own beer from start to finish. You get paired up with like a brewer. Obviously, we're not just going to like let you loose on the brew house by yourself if you've never done it before. But um, a brewer, and then someone from a department that you probably have never really worked directly with, like someone maybe from finance or like maybe in distribution or something like that. Oh, cool. So oh, wow. it's also like, it's, you, you get to learn about the brewing process, but it's also team building. Um, yeah. This program is like one of the main reasons that I wanted to work for Muskoka. Um, but I've done two of them now. The first one was like, I think in 2018, 2017 or 2018, it was called break it down Brown. It was a sour Brown so now and it was incredible. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then the second one I made back a year ago, a year ago, like March, um, for International Women's Day, I brewed a Brett Saison called You Bread a Work, and it had lemon and rose hips in it. It was awesome. To listen to the rest of the episode or for more episodes of the Famous Friends podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite streams. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.